0: this month is black history month in our congregation here at the community evidence fellowship in arcadia california at 100 west duarte road we have some wonderful african american members and today we're going to dedicate this portion of our program to these wonderful people who are in our midst and beverly has something special to say today and i want you to welcome her as she comes and talks to us. Welcome to church, to you.
1: His father was killed in a farming accident before he was born. Tragically, while he was still a baby, he and his mother and sister were grabbed off the farm by some bushwhackers, troublemakers from the Civil War. Uncle Mose was able to get George back, but they never saw his mother and sister again. All that remained of his family was himself and his big brother, Jim. The year is 1871, and George Washington Carver, now eight years old. He knew his mother and sister had been taken during the Civil War, although as he said to his brother, how how could a war be called civil? He just couldn't fathom that. From an early age, he had developed an immense curiosity about everything under the sun, especially in the natural world. More than anything, he wanted to go to school. But as his brother told him, you can't because regular schools won't take colored folks like us. But George believed that God had given him a talent and he had better learn to use it. Sadly, a little while later, Jim died of smallpox. George was more determined than ever to get an education, so he looked until he finally found a school that accepted him. Over the next few years, he studied and worked after school to take care of himself. At 23, he bought himself a 160-acre farm in Kansas, but after three years of drought, he left and decided to go to college. He did so well that his friends and teachers encouraged him to attend Iowa State, where he soon established himself as a notable student of botany, horticulture and agriculture. At the age of 30, he received his BS degree and two years later, he obtained his MA. Graduation moved him into a world he had only dreamed about. After 30 years of struggling on next to nothing, he had finally made it. He received many offers to teach and finally chose the African-American Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. The president of this college was another famous African-American, Booker T. Washington. These two great men had both been born as slaves and had both come to believe that true and full freedom would only come to their people through a good education and economic independence. For the next 47 years he taught young people about botany, horticulture and agriculture. He also held meetings for the farmers of the area and solved many problems from saving the cotton industry from the wretched boll weevil to how to restore a sick plant like a rose or an azalea. It seemed as if God had opened up the book of nature and had shared his secrets with George Washington Carver. Dr. Carver also had a good sense of humor. One day, one of his classes decided to trick him, and they invented a bug of their own. They took bits and pieces from several other bugs, glued it together, and then placed it on his table. Well, when he came into class, he glanced at it, but then went on with the class. And one of the students just couldn't stand it and he put up his hand and said, please, sir, what's that bug on your table? And Dr. Carver looked him in the eye and said, young man, that's a humbug. (laughs) And it took a couple of minutes to quieten the class down as you can imagine. He showed the farmers how to increase their yield of sweet potatoes which was very important, for at that time, many of the people were starving. He also discovered numerous ways to use the humble peanut. Now, peanuts were cultivated by the Indians in South America. They were exported to Africa and then brought back to North America on the slave ships. In 1916, he became a member of the American Agricultural Society and also the prestigious Royal Society of Great Britain. In 1921, he spoke before Congress on behalf of American peanut farmers over tariff matters. He had been given 10 minutes, but because of his fervour and knowledge, they gave him nearly two hours. And as they listened and watched in amazement as he pulled out samples of products that he had made from the humble peanut. First, there was peanut milk from which one could make ice cream and cheese. He had face cream, relish, mock chicken, coffee, ink, and dyes made from the skin of the peanut. And over his lifetime, he developed over 200 products from the humble peanut. And he closed his presentation to the Congress by quoting Genesis 1.29. Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and therein lies the source of his success, a strong and abiding faith in God and his word. Perhaps more important than all his discoveries was his lifelong witness to the love of God. During all his years of teachings, Teaching, he always held a Bible class and the students used to flock to it. And he told his students his secret of success and happiness. For him it was found in verses like Second Timothy two, study to show yourself approved. And also Philippians four thirteen, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Perhaps his life could be summed up best by the lesson of the small and seemingly insignificant peanut. In the hands of God, there is no limit to our usefulness. And young people, what God did for this boy, born of a slave, became an orphan, yet he grew up to do great things for his fellow man. What God did for Dr. George Washington Carver, he can do for you.
0: topic today is, are you bad enough to be saved and go to heaven? Some would think the question is wrong, should be, are you good enough to be saved? Are you good enough to go to heaven? Because most of us, if we were brought up in religious societies, have been brainwashed with the idea that you've got to be good enough. To go to heaven. It was a Sunday school class, or was it a Sabbath school class? And the teacher said to her little children, Is there anybody you know who is good enough to go to heaven? One sweet little girl said, My mummy is good enough to go to heaven. The teacher said, Your mummy is a wonderful person, but she's not good enough to go to heaven. Is there anybody else you think is good enough to go to heaven? One little boy, who was obviously deluded, said, my pastor is good enough to go to heaven. (laughs) The teacher said to the children, who were all little legalists, (laughs) she said to the children, we don't go to heaven because we're good enough. We go to heaven because Jesus is good enough and he died for us. And he's our savior. Amen. The greatest text in the Bible you know up by heart. We all know it. Just about everybody knows it. It's John 3.16. The problem is most of us don't believe it. The text says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You don't read in that text about being good enough to go to heaven. You read about Jesus who died for our sins. A precious family in our church is the Caracas family. And a special member of the Caracas family is Lindsay. And she's going to come now. Would you like to come, Sweetie Pie? She's all primed up and ready to go. How are you, Lindsay? Good. Are you good? Have you a passage to read today? Let's tell the people to turn to the text Luke 18 verses 9 to 14. Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 to 14. And Lindsay is going to read this text for us and with us. Luke 18 9 to 14. Thank you, Lindsay.
2: To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down to everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted.
0: Good. And have you a question for me?
2: Pastor Carter, who are the Pharisees?
0: That's a good question. Thank you, sweetie. Thank you. Who were the Pharisees? Because the star of that parable is the Pharisee. The Pharisees arose in the second century B.C. as a rea- reaction against worldliness in the church. The word Pharisee means the separate one because he was separate he thought from sin and separate from the world. The Pharisees were not just ordinary people, they were good people, the best of the best. And they sought to hasten the coming of the Messiah through godly living. This is important. The Pharisees taught that if all Israel would keep the law of God just for a day, the kingdom of God would come. So they believed that the coming of the Messiah was dependent upon their godliness. They were lovers of the Bible. They loved to sit around and discuss and discuss and discuss and talk about the Bible. So they loved the Bible. They loved the law of God. In fact to help people to keep the Sabbath they invented one thousand 521 special rules to help people to keep the Sabbath. They had a tremendous missionary zeal. Jesus said they would compass sea and land to make one proselyte. So they were filled with a missionary zeal and they were in a sense Adventists because the word Adventist means a person who believes in the coming of the Lord. And so anybody who believes in the coming of the Lord is an Adventist. And they were Adventists who also kept the Sabbath. The core of their theology was found in their attitude towards sin. They taught that sin was simply an action... And they taught that the fall of Adam, that is recorded in the book of Genesis, really did not change the capacity of man to serve God. And so they taught that by God's help and by their effort, a person could attain to perfect righteousness by the keeping of the law of God. They had many, many rules. And everything really was based not so much on what was happening inside but upon the outward action of the mind. So it was all basically outward. Somebody has said there's only one thing more important than being humble and that is to look humble. And so they believed in looking humble. They hated Jesus. They were the greatest religionists the world had ever seen. Always praying, always reading their Bibles. But in the end their hands became stained with the blood of the Son of God. And they really believed that they were good. They really believed it. But Jesus said the Pharisee went home lost... And the publican went home saved. Now Steve is going to come and read to us John chapter 8 verses 1 to 11. I want you to turn to that passage. Steve Kashuki. Glad to have you with us Steve. And he's going to read. Thank you for that. Going to read John chapter 8 verses 1 to 11.
3: Okay. But But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at... Dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where he, uh, where, all, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Then, I mean, they were using this question to trap him in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him first throw the stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Now go home and leave your life of sin. Now, Pastor Carter, i got a question for you. What was
0: Jesus riding in the dust on the ground? Thank you. Thank you. What was Jesus... What was he writing in the dust, in the ground? The New Revised Standard Version that I've started to read through has an interesting note. It says, A number of ancient manuscripts say he wrote in the dust the sins of those men. So they had caught this woman, the Pharisees had caught her, the upholders of the law, and Jesus sat down and, as they gazed over his shoulder, he was writing down the times and the dates and the names. You see, Pharisaism is no safeguard against lust and adultery. A person who does not understand the gospel cannot stand before and against sin. And The problem with the Pharisees is that they had no sense of the righteousness of God. They spent their time picking up stones instead of picking up people. Jesus picked up people and left the stones lie but the Pharisees were good at criticising people. What do we do with a girl in the church and we discover and she discovers that she's pregnant? Is she made to stand in front of the congregation or the elders and confess her sin? The Pharisees were good. At picking up stones. Jesus was good at picking up people. George Martinet is going to come and read to us from Luke chapter 15. When you get here, George, you can tell us the passage you're going to read. Luke chapter 15, and what verse is it, George? I'm going to read
4: Luke chapter 15, verse 25 through 32. Thank you, George. Meanwhile, Pastor Carter wasn't the older brother a really good person?
0: He was George. He was. Thank you. He was very good and he was very lost. Jesus told the story in the context of pharisaism. Because if you read the start of the story of the prodigal son, you find the pharisee said this man eats with sinners. So they got mad with Jesus because he met with sinners. So Jesus told the story And the older brother in the story is the Pharisee. And the interesting thing is the Pharisee says, I never did the things that this younger boy did. I've been home slaving. I've been working out in the fields. He wasn't at home with his feet up sucking Coca-Cola. He wasn't a slacker. He was a worker. and He was a Pharisee. But there was one problem with this older brother. He had nothing of the love of God in his heart. He was a legalist. I've been home all this time and I've been working for you but when this other son of yours comes, you kill the fattened calf. That was the problem with the heart of the Pharisee. The Pharisee had no sense of sin. And because he had no sense of sin, he had no need for mercy or forgiveness, and because he had no need for mercy or forgiveness, he could not show mercy or forgiveness towards other people. The next passage is going to be read to us by Susie Caracas, and she's going to come and read Luke chapter seven and verse thirty six to fifty Luke chapter seven. I want you to turn to the passage, Luke seven. And verse 36 to 50, which is an amazing and wonderful story. Luke 7, verse 36. and Thank you, Susie.
5: Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven loves little. Who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you. My question for you is who was the biggest sinner, the prostitute or the Pharisee?
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. What a story this is. Can you catch the drama of this? Here is the Lord, the Lord of glory. He's at the home of Simon, the Pharisee. You cannot understand the plan of redemption or the New Testament unless you understand the truth about the Pharisees. There were 6,000 Pharisees. That's not many. But they had an enormous influence. These were not ordinary people. They were so devout for God. They were first at church. They were the teachers and they were the preachers. Now Simon had a problem because Simon had leprosy. Pharisee with leprosy. And Jesus healed him of leprosy. And some think that in an attempt to show the Lord gratitude, Simon said, come to my house and I will give you a magnificent banquet. And while Jesus is in the house, a woman comes in. Some think this is Mary Magdalene. She has a name. And notice what Simon calls her, a sinner. With the Pharisees, there were two types of people. There were righteous people, like the Pharisees, and there were sinners. There are two types of sinners as we all know. There are respectable sinners and disrespectable sinners. Simon did not understand this. He did not see himself at all as a sinner. And when the woman comes in who has a name in the town as a prostitute, a lady of the night who would sell her body for money, She sees Jesus and he has redeemed her from a life of prostitution. And she goes up and in the midst of this happy group of people who are feasting, she gets down and she lets her hair down. She's a beautiful woman. She lets her hair down and she kisses his feet. She pours perfume. Dreadfully expensive, it appears that the perfume that she had bought was the equivalent of a year's wages. And so, if in America the average person earns 40, 50, Sixty thousand dollars a year. She comes in and she has an extravagant, gift, extravagant gift that has cost her forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars. So she pours this perfume on him, and then she starts to cry. She takes hold of his feet, and she takes hold of his feet, and she's kissing his feet, and then she's crying profusely and the tears are staining his feet they're dusty and she takes her hair and she wipes his feet with her hair the pharisee arches his back if he were the messiah he would know what sort of woman is touching her He should have known because he knew her touch. That's the dreadful thing about Pharisaism. It looks good on the outside but inside it stinks, Jesus said, like tombs. Jesus said you walk over the ground, you don't realize you're walking over rotting corpses, Jesus said. That's like the Pharisee. And so Simon thinks in his heart. If he were a prophet, he didn't say the Son of God, hadn't got to that stage, but reluctantly he'd come to the viewpoint that Jesus was a prophet. He said, if he were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman is touching her, for she is a sinner. But Jesus hears it because he knows what we're thinking. He knows what you're thinking now in church. He knows what you're thinking at home. He knows what you're thinking all the time. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you publicly. What is he going to do? Is he going to tell the story? Is he going to spill the beans? Simon, I have something to tell you. Then he tells the story of the two debtors. He says there was one who owed a great deal and he forgave that person completely and freely. There was a person who owed just a little bit. Now what does Simon think when he heard this? For Simon, perception was reality. Simon thought that the woman owed the great debt. That he owed just a little. That was his perception. But Simon had it round the wrong way. Jesus told the story because he was telling the story according to Simon's perception, not according to absolute reality. Because Simon was a thousand times worse than the prostitute. Simon didn't realize this. So he Simon falls for the trap that the Lord has set, and he says, I suppose the one he forgave the most. And Jesus said, Yes, that is true, because the person who has forgiven the most, not the person who has sinned the most, but the person who's forgiven the most loves the most. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And Simon, you love little, and it shows that you have been forgiven little. The Pharisee had no idea of the depravity of the human heart. The Pharisee was a person who would never say to his wife, I'm sorry the Pharisee says I will never say to anybody I apologize I never apologize because the Pharisee is lost the elder brother is lost we're told in the scriptures that the prodigal came home we're never told that the older brother ever came to the party never 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 You can tell if you're a Pharisee or not by your attitude towards people who sin. One of the reasons that so called religious Christian homes produce so many rebellious young people, not always but often the reason that we produce so many rebellious young people who can hardly wait until they get of age is because they have never seen or experienced the love of God. The Pharisee is great on rules, great on regulations, great on disciplining people, great on telling you what to do, but doesn't understand that he is the greatest sinner of them all for the Pharisee perception is everything but God knows the heart and from that meeting this woman who was the town prostitute went out with a song in her heart with great love to the Lord because he had redeemed her little wonder that Jesus had an adjective for the Pharisee. Blind Pharisee. Blind Pharisee. Rabbi Simeon Ben Chokai, who lived some years back, I think maybe some hundreds of years back, he said, If there are only two righteous men in the world, I and my son are these two. If there is only one, I am he. Blind Pharisee. Most of us are very good at finding fault with other people. We can straighten out everybody else as kids. We're never called to find fault with others. We're called to consider our own souls. Now, our dear sweet Marcella is going to come and read a text. All these people are sweet, of course, but I always say Marcella is sweet because she worked for me. She had to be sweet to work for me. Marcella's going to read, she had to. Be sweet to stay sweet. She's going to read Luke chapter seven, twenty-eight to 30. Luke chapter 7 and verse 28 to 30. Thank you, Marcella.
2: I tell you, among those born of women, there is no greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. I have a question. Yes. Why did the Pharisees dislike John's preaching?
0: Thank you, Marcella. Well, John preached against sin. That's why. They rejected his preaching. There were some Pharisees who were baptized in the River Jordan but not a lot. John's Preaching was summed up in these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent, you've got to realize that you need to repent. But if you're sinless, you don't need to repent. Like the lady who taught the Sunday school class, Sabbath school class, one of my churches, she said, when I say my prayers at night, I don't need to repent because I've done nothing wrong all day. This is the truth. She said, I I do not break the law. I keep all of God's commandments. I don't need to repent. Of course if you're keeping all of God's commandments you don't need to repent. Even though this particular woman was instrumental in driving more people out of the church than I could baptize. You know why? Frosty, cold, always telling people how to dress. You see the problem with the Pharisee when he heard the preaching of John the Baptist, he found it insulting. Because the Pharisee had an inadequate view of sin. And do not think for one moment that Pharisaism is dead. The Pharisees' religion was do this, do this, and if there's anything more you want me to do or I should do, I will do it. And thus I will attain to righteousness. You see, the Pharisee did not believe in atonement. The Pharisee believed in attainment. And thus the Pharisee had a completely inadequate view of sin. He thought it was simply an outward act. And therefore he had no need to repent. Eric is going to come and he's going to read to us from Romans 7, verse 8 to 17. I'm very proud of my church members. We have a, a wonderful group of people in our church. Romans 7, verse 8 to 17. Eric, we welcome you to church. Romans 7, 8 to 17. What shall we say
6: then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed I will not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that every commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I do, what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, as if it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, But it is sin living in me now pastor carter i have another question for you is this a born-again christian speaking or someone who is not born again and an unregenerate sinner thanks eric Mm -hmm. thank you
0: let me give you a little history in the book of romans and its interpretation this is perhaps the most controversial chapter in the bible this chapter is written by an ex-Pharisee. That's important for you to know. Written by Paul. When scholars discuss the book of Romans chapter 7, they found in Romans 7 there is a conflict. And a man cries out and he says, I am carnal. I'm a sinner. The things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, They're the things I do. And then he cries out and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. He calls himself a wretched man. In the days of the Protestant reformers, the Jesuits who believe in sinless perfectionism, because that's the basis of Catholicism, said, This cannot be Paul the converted man. This is Paul the lost sinner. But the Protestant reformers Martin Luther and the rest said no this is talking about Paul the converted man. The Bible teaches the latter. Number one. Romans 7 is in the context of sanctification. It's talking about sanctification. Number two, it is written not in the past tense but in the present tense. And also it contains observations that only a born again man can appreciate and say. He says we know that the law is spiritual. A carnal man does not understand the holiness of the law. But this is a man who understands the holiness of the law of God and his own sinfulness. The mark of a Christian, listen carefully to this, the mark of a Christian as he goes along is not that he thinks he's getting holier and holier and more righteous and better But the mark of a Christian is the closer he comes to God, the more he sees himself as a sinner. And that is why the mark of a true Christian is to be a continual penitent and to cry out for the mercy of God. If you're not crying out for the mercy of God, it's because you don't need it. And if you don't need it, there is no need of atonement. Is this a man, Romans 7, who's a blasphemer? A Sabbath breaker who goes and works on the Sabbath saying the things I don't want to do, I I do. I don't want to break the Sabbath but I go ahead and do it. No, it's not talking about this at all. What's it talking about? It's talking about a man who is living so close to God that every defect in his character is glaringly plain. He says, here is Barnabas. And here is Luke. I wasn't as patient with Luke as I should have been. We stand back and we look at Paul and we say, what a great man, what a righteous man, what a, a law keeper, and rightly so. But if you ask Paul, because he's living close to God, he says, I am the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. You see there's mercy for the chief of sinners but there's no salvation at all for the Pharisee while he stays in that condition because the Pharisee never repents of his sin. He never is contrite. He's never torn up. Why should he be? He's good. He's good. He's good in the very worst sense of the term. Revelation chapter 3: 14 to 17. It's a great passage. Would you please come? Who's reading this one? Yes, Carla. My dear Krista, my dear Krista, thinking of Carla because that's George's wife. But this is Krista Matheson, and she comes from a wonderful family in our church, and she's one of our beautiful young people, and we're glad that you're here today, Krista.
2: To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I have acquired health and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Pastor Carter, who is the Church of Laodicea?
0: Thank you. Let me tell you, thank you. The Church of Laodicea is the last church. It's number seven. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, all those churches. It's the last of the seven. It is a church that suffers from the sin of self-deception. It is a church that is heavy on works. Like the Pharisee. I know your works. The last church is the church of the older brother. It is a church that is smug and satisfied. It is too good to repent. As Dr. Forsythe said, there is no sin more subtle than the sin of goodness. The sin of the good people who do not know that they are not good. In 1888 Alan White referred to moral moral icebergs, cold, sunless, dark, and forbidding. This church dimly comprehends the gospel. It talks about the gospel and it talks about preaching the gospel, but this church dimly understands the gospel of Jesus. I know your works, great on works. But Jesus says you need eye salve. The Pharisee needed I because the Pharisee was blind. This is a church whose membership largely is blind. Jesus says buy me white clothing so you're not going to be naked. It is a naked church. It needs the righteousness of Christ that is given as a free gift because of Jesus. And Jesus says you need to have gold and the gold is the same as the hidden riches. It is the gospel. It's an interesting passage is Revelation 3 compared with Romans 7. In Romans 7 the apostle Paul says oh wretched man that I am. This word wretched is used only twice in the New Testament. It's used there. O oh, wretched man that I am, in Romans chapter 7, it is used for the second time in Revelation 3, where it refers to the last church that does not know that it's wretched. Paul knows he's wretched. Laodicea, pharisaism, does not recognize the wretchedness of the soul. That we are all sinners. Can this church be saved? This church cannot be saved corporately. None of us are saved by belonging to a church. We are saved as the light of the gospel shines into our hearts and shows us our true condition so that we will come to God. Now, Elmar, who is a special member of my congregation, and who is an actress, is going to come and tell you a story. The story is about the deacon and the hippie.
7: Okay, there was this um, beautiful high church in England. It was a very beautiful church. It was in America. Okay, it was in America.
0: I'd rather, it's in America. I'm glad you didn't say it was in Australia. I would have taken personal (laughs) offense. But it was in England. That's right. Go ahead, I won't interrupt again.
7: So anyway, it was a very beautiful church, and it had ivy coming down the walls. Very beautiful. Mm. So inside the church, people were worshiping God, as was their custom every week. And these people, they were really high society, you know, and they were singing hymns at this time of day. And (laughs) And then the door opened, so they reverently turned to see who was coming in. And it was a hippie. And he had long, dirty, straggly hair that came down to his waist. Mm-hmm. And he had a very long beard, crumbs, and still from breakfast that morning, mm-hmm. had crumbs in his beard. And he had dirt in his fingernails and dirt in his toenails. Very dirty. Very dirty. Mm-hmm. Very dirty hippie. And so then this old, crusty deacon pulled himself off the wall and started following the hippie down this long aisle. And he had the hymn book in his hand. And so the people started going, oh, he's going to hit the man with the hymn book? What's he going to do? So he comes th- the hippie comes on down the aisle, and he sits right up front. He crosses his leg and starts swinging his dirty, crusty feet. And then the pastor, he leaned over the pulpit, and he's looking. And then all the people were thinking, oh, judgment's going to come on this hippie today. <laughs> but then the deacon, he comes and walks down, and he sits right next to the hippie. He crosses his legs, passes him the hymn book, and they start singing hymns together. So tell me, Pastor Carter, who was the Pharisee in the church?
0: Thank you, Elmer. Who was the Pharisee? Can you spot the Pharisee? Was the Pharisee the hippie? No, no. For the Pharisee, no, no, no. The hippie, his law was, if you feel it's good, do it. He was smoking pot, doing all those things. He was. And when, when he came into the church, no wonder the people looked around. They probably knew he was there before they saw him. <laughs> so he was a lawbreaker. He was a, what's the word? Sinner. S-I-N-N-E-R. I, a, what? A sinner. Now, I wasn't there, but I could imagine, just going to imagine, Here you've got these people. This is a beautiful church. They're very comfortable. They're very smug. They're very self-satisfied. And they see this person come into the church. He doesn't belong in our church. We are Episcopalians or something. We are conservative. We are here to worship God. The Pharisee does not want... A sinner in church. Though so they were the worst of sinners. But their problem was the problem of goodness. Where is the deacon a Pharisee? This crusty old deacon who followed him down the aisle holding the hymn book. The hippie comes and sits down in front of the pulpit, crosses his dirty legs, and the pastor gives him the look. (laughs) And the old deacon comes, sits down beside him, and says, Would you like to sing with me? The old deacon was a true representative of the Lord who said, This man receives sinners and goes to eat with them. So I come to the question again. Are you and I bad enough to be saved? Heaven is only for those who realize their sinfulness and who come in penitence to the Lord Jesus Christ. We only come in penitence when we realize our sinfulness. We never come to the place where we stop coming if we're going to be saved. If you've come to the place in your life where you say I've been baptized, I've saved, I came into the church, I'm a member of the church and I'm on the conference committee and blah, 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 blah. And if you're trusting in a church or trusting in anything but trusting in Christ, then there is no salvation. We come because of our need. We come because we are sinners. We come to Christ begging for mercy and for forgiveness. And the very act in coming to Christ in mercy and forgiveness and accepting mercy and forgiveness Bill, deal, it is that coming in faith, in penitence that changes the heart. That's what makes people different people. Isn't it true, Bill? That's what makes people different people. That's what made Mary a beautiful, clean lady because she came. So my question today is not Are you good enough to be saved? My question is, are you bad enough?